love dogs. I love dogs, too. Glad we're all on the same page. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Sarah Andreco Show. So, Dr. Dodman, thank you once again for joining me today and sharing some of your knowledge with our professional community. You are currently the president and CEO of the Canine Behavior Studies, which is a nonprofit organization, correct? Uh, the Center for Canine Behavior Studies. Yes, the Center for Canine Behavior Studies. And what studies are you particularly focused on right now uh, to help reduce euthanasia? Well, actually, um, indirectly, yes, we do hope to reduce euthanasia. And while there are good groups like ASPCA who are trying to get dogs adopted from shelters once they have been surrendered, our approach is a little bit different in the sense that we hope through education, um, knowledge, which is key to everything, they can actually help people live more harmoniously with their pets so there is no need to surrender them. So when I was at veterinary school, we were the veterinary school who was first on what was called preventive medicine. So instead of the fire engine service where you wait till something goes wrong and then you try and fix it, we were trying to work. This was back in the 60s, 65 to 70. It was all about preventive medicine. Well, this is already preventive behaviorism that we're trying to stop things from going wrong so the dog doesn't end up by getting surrendered because so many are surrendered because of incompatible behavior. So understanding, knowing what to do, go a long way to causing harmonious relationship. And so our motto really is that all dogs should have a home for life. I couldn't agree more. And behavior is definitely one of the top reasons that dogs are surrendered to shelters and or turned over to their veterinarians for euthanasia, rehomed. It's almost transferring one problem to the next. And um, oftentimes those behavioral issues get much worse. Uh, in, in being surrendered to a, another individual or a shelter environment, and they end up euthanized. And um, I love that you guys are focused on education in particular, because I think, you know, most dog owners out there that are just average get a dog and just kind of think things will work itself out and all will be okay and don't understand all of the very important preventive measures that go into making a well-rounded, behaviorally sound animal at the end of it all. Right. So actually one of the sort of smaller studies that we just uh, finished and have sent off for publication was about um, factors that people consider when adopting a dog. You know, do they judge a book by its cover? Do they choose the dog because it looks cute? Do they choose it because they want certain, um, you know, friendliness or good behavior? Or what, what are the factors they choose? Um, use in their ch selection and and then down the road how does that work out for them you know is it is it a are there some things that are less important than others and some that are more important than others so we did that in conjunction with a group called how i met my dog and they suggested the questions for us so it's really a match.com for dogs and owners to try and make sure that you know if you buy um say um a St. Bernard puppy because it looks so cute, but you're just not aware of the fact that it's going to turn into something the size of a small pony that you then have to keep outside and then things go wrong. To try and guide people to not just do impulse buys, but to think carefully about the decision. You know, is it the type of dog? Is it the size of dog? Can they afford it? Um, does it go in their home? 
Um, will they be able to provide the right exercise? Is it a dog that requires a lot of exercise or is it a couch potato? They've got to think before they buy. A lot of people put a lot of thought into, say, buying a car, but they just buy, a, you know, purchase a dog from a shelter or from a breeder, um, just like, you know, you choose a pair of pants in a, a supermarket kind of thing. And I wonder if any of the the um, urgency, the sense of urgency has anything to do with that it's from a shelter perspective, where if you walk into a, munici- a municipal shelter and you pick out a puppy, that puppy could be gone the second you walk out the door. Or, you know, if you go to a rescue, you go to an adoption event and there's lots of people there looking at the same animals you're looking at, or, you know, a breeder has a waiting list. I wonder if that sense of urgency kind of plays into some of those spontaneous decisions to know we got to hurry up and make this decision now, whether than having that kind of well thought out process to exactly what we're looking for before we take it home. Actually, that did happen to me. So um, I have a dog <laughs> on a couch behind me called Rusty and I wasn't even present. My wife went down to the shelter to pick up two cats because we had just lost two cats through old age. One was 19, one was 21. She went down after a suitable mourning period to adopt two cats. And then she did several trips to the shelter looking for the right one and saw this dog, Rusty. And he was sitting there. He looked cute as, you know, sort of his rusty colored and his ears kind of curled over at the top. And then she realized he was very sweet. And I happened to not know she was going to choose a dog. So I was actually on the first hole of a golf course. And she called me and said, <laughs> found this dog. Um, can I get him? And I said, well, can I come around? Because I wrote a book chapter about how to select a dog from a shelter. Can I weigh in? She said, no, I have to get him <laughs> right now or not at all, because there's another couple of people in the wings who've already sort of put dibs on him, but they're prepared to give him to me, a veterinarian, in preference, if I can make a decision now. So mm. I said, use your best judgment. And when I got home from the golf game, there was a big orange tail wagging in my kitchen and it was rusty 13 years ago oh my goodness so yeah same, the best t- same type situation yeah, yeah. I and mean, he walks off lead he listens he waits uh you know he can be chasing a rabbit you can say leave it and he just stops in his tracks no training it's just kind of mutual understanding i have a feeling that has something to do with having a veterinary behaviorist in the house but that's just a hunch <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. He, I mean, I think there's a lot of dog factors there. I think he is genuinely a very nice dog, a very kind soul. And when he first arrived, he had a bit of separation anxiety. So obviously, you know, he really needed somebody and he needed someone to be with him all the time, which we tried to do as far as possible. I mean, right now, you know, my grown kids say, Dad, when you got rusty, he had separation anxiety. Now you're the one with the separation anxiety from him. <laughs> So you know, people say, would you like to come out to dinner with us tonight? And I say, can I bring my dog? <laughs> <laughs> and they say, no. And then I say, I'm not going. Sorry. <laughs> I love that you have that much of a bond with him. That's great. Yeah, but it's very strong between the two of us. You know, he still does a bit of shadowing, which is one of the signs of separation anxiety. But if I go upstairs, he goes upstairs. I'm downstairs now, so he's downstairs. If I went upstairs, he'd come upstairs. But the thing is, he doesn't have any of the other typical signs of separation anxiety now. He's just very attached. And so he listens very well. And he reads us like he's reading a book. He knows, you know, you can, he's got a huge vocabulary too. So I could say, 
okay, I think it's time for the walk. And he gets up, starts stretching and yawning, getting ready for the walk. I mean, I bet he must know a thousand words. Oh, that's we have to fantastic. spell things out. <laughs> the W-A-L-K, so we don't get excited too early. C-H is cheese. Oh, <laughs> we even have to use short term because I'm guessing he's learning how to spell some certain things too that he's right. used to hearing. Right, we might have to change to French shortly. <laughs> Then we'll have a, a bilingual dog as well. Yeah, lucky he's Goodness. not poodle. <laughs> well, and it's interesting too. You you ended up really with a, a well-rounded dog and in a really good situation. And um, I feel that it's so hard for other people that make those spontaneous decisions because you really don't get to know the true nature and the true personality of the dog until after kind of that first little honeymoon period that you have, you know, first two or three weeks. And you know, that getting to know you phase. And so some really interesting characteristics and personality traits can come out after the dog has, you know, settled into the new home and then kind of the real work starts. Or I guess in your case, not much work in the way of Rusty, but, you know, a lot of people don't end up with quite as smooth of a transition with a spontaneous um Well, there were a few production. other issues, like he had, you know, what's called super submission or submissive urination to start with. So people would ask me to send a picture of me with Rusty and one of them, funnily enough, was a website that was called Dogs and Coffee. So you had to take your favorite coffee and brew a pot and put the bag next to it and then sit there with your dog and there's the dog and the coffee. And there's a nice picture of me sitting on my couch with the coffee pot on the table, smiling away, and Rusty's sitting there. When I look at the picture, I can see he looks very worried. And right after the picture was taken, pss, 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 he heard oh. nothing. Oh, so, my goodness. You know, he, we, he pretty much stopped that fairly soon with us. But my grown daughter, she's quite, um, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know, sort of, I don't know what the right word is, but very sort of powerful person. And she'd walk in and say, hello, how are you, Rusty? And don't look at him. Just come in and be quiet, sit down, be calm. Right. It's a little overwhelming. Yeah. And he actually went to daycare half a day a week and he loved it. He would be very excited going to daycare on a Wednesday afternoon came home like a sack of potatoes, all tired and happy. <laughs> but then one day they said, I'm afraid he urinated on another dog. And if he does that again, he's going to be thrown out. Oh, they had no my. idea who I was. They just said, we suggest you seek the help of a trainer. <laughs> and I said, okay. And then I did, did nothing. I took him back and then he did it a second time. And he was thrown out for good. So he's a daycare dropout. Oh, for well, urination. On other dogs. Then they have to give them a bath before they can give them back to their owner. <laughs> the owners probably liked that. That was probably a good thing. Yeah, it wasn't so good when you did it on them. Yeah. They walk up and pee on them too. I said, oh my God, I think he's urinated on me. So oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I've, and I've been in that position before too. That's frustrating. I know you say, you know, they didn't know who you were and they recommended that you seek the help of a trainer. But one of the issues that I've run into just as a behavior professional is that most, most times, even veterinary professionals, um, veterinary staff, other trainers don't understand the difference between like your, your behaviorists, your veterinary behaviorists, your behavior consultants, and then your dog trainers, you know, not understanding kind of some of the simple basics. And oftentimes I feel that people get directed to a dog trainer for some pretty serious behavioral issues and aren't seeing, you know, the results they're looking for when they're just focusing on things like sit and down and stay and heal and those obedience factors and, or they're using different methodology than say a behavior professional would use 
So that can be really, um, really difficult, but I feel like that's a huge educational piece too. And I saw some of this on your website about pushing out information in regard to what behaviorists actually are, who they are, what their educational makeup is. Um, and I wrote an article about this last year that I had some peers review, um, a couple of board certified veterinary behaviorists, but also some trainers and behavior professionals, because I do, I feel like oftentimes we are not, um, as a whole directing people to the right professional to tackle the problem that they're having with their animal, which obviously ends up in further frustration and that likelihood for euthanasia or surrender to a shelter. Do you find that to be the case? Definitely a place for all the different types of professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in human medicine, um, you might have at one level the family counselor. You know, if there are things that aren't going quite right and it's just you need some direction. And I think of trainers being more like counselors that, you know, help people understand their dog and get them to do the right thing. And then the next level up for humans is a psychologist that if things are really a little bit off kilter, it's not just a normal family problem, you're going to see a psychologist, and that would be people like the uh, certified applied animal behaviorists. And then if things are still out of control, or if you need medicine, or if it might be a veterinary problem that's underlying, or you suspect there might be, then you go to see a veterinary behaviorist who is the human equivalent would be a psychiatrist. But you don't go to see a psychiatrist for a dog jumping up. You go to the family council or, or the trainer. But some of the problems that are regarded as quite common um, and you know, maybe easy fixes like separation anxiety, they're really not easy fixes. Mm-hmm. And there, there are trainers who've written books about resolving separation anxiety, but you know, it's a very challenging condition, even for a veterinary behaviorist. Yeah, I agree. And, and you've dealt with that with your own dog with Rusty too. And separation anxiety, I know is one of those things that you've focused on in the past. And I'd love to pick your brain a little bit about it. Um, because I do see that as something that needs to be kind of on the behavior professional spectrum. Um, I know a lot of dog trainers do kind of dip into behavior and work with owners that have those problems, but I feel like it's such a deep rooted behavior oftentimes. And obviously these are individual cases. We look at every dog as an individual, but just in your experience, um, with some of the research that you've done, what are some of the, the common mistakes that you see people giving advice to owners with? dogs that are suffering from an isolation issue or a separation-related problem in particular? Well, there's all kinds of um, people out there giving advice. And, um, you know, some of the just really terrible advice is um, to punish the dog for bratty behavior. Mm. And that was uh, written up in a a book um, by now deceased uh, Mr. Kola. He wrote a book called The Kola Way. I think the book's been as K O E H L E R. I wouldn't advise anyone to buy it. <laughs> don't read it. <laughs> don't, don't read it. But you know, he he recommends you know thrashing the dog with a belt to stop oh. ratty behavior. So you leave it alone, and when you hear it um, vocalizing, you run back into the house and, um, and uh, belt belt it to within an inch of its life, and then for good measure, you repeat it. It'll soon stop that bratty behavior. So wow. punishment in general is not. It's not a good strategy and usually makes things worse. It can solve a problem in the instant, but in the long term, it has a very negative effect on dogs and children, uh, depending on the, I mean, uh, withholding um, 
you know, withholding a privilege is a type of punishment, but that, that's, I'm talking about physical punishment is never indicated. But for separation anxiety, the one thing that I think um, so many trainers think, uh, and perhaps some behaviorists think is helpful is the so-called desensitization program. Mm -hmm. um, some people call it planned departures where you're sitting in your seat and you stand up and you get your car keys and then you sit down again and then you put your coat on and you put the coat off and you go to the door and you open the door and you put one leg in and then the other leg in, shake it all about. And, you know, <laughs> I did try that when I first started and I got as far as the, uh, the person could get down the drive into their car, start the engine, rock the car backwards and forwards. But the minute the lights went around the corner and disappeared, the dog broke down again. So it, it took a long time to figure out that that program is if it does work, uh, extremely difficult to make work. And desensitization programs in general are not something that people um, are very good at uh, employing, um, even if they work. So I don't even use planned departure technique. Um, it's a totally different approach. But, you know, you try and, um, you know, in, in a, yeah, I could talk for an hour and a half on it, but basically you try and make mm -hmm. the home alone environment very user-friendly by appealing to all of the dog's five senses simultaneously. Like it's a, it's a wonderful place to be and then you withdraw all of those wonderful things when you come home because the dog has you instead. Interesting. So pulling away all of the resources. So are you, are you saying from a perspective of like the things that they typically engage with and enjoy? So they're, they're toys right. or. Well, well, an extreme version is espoused by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Ian Dunbar from the West coast. Um, yeah. we're both um, Englishmen. He graduated from, um, London university in 1971. And I graduated in Scotland from Glasgow university in 1970. We ended up in California together, became friends. He went directly into behavior. I went in a sort of circuitous course through surgery and anesthesia and then back into behavior. But his advice for separation anxiety is you just take the dog's food and you put it down when you leave, the whole day's food. And when you come back, you pick it up. So if the dog, mm. you know, to start with, one of the signs of separation anxiety is not eating when the yep. owner's away. So we call that psychogenic anorexia. Um, but if you do that for two or three days, his theory is that the appetite then builds up and the dog will finally eat. And he'll look forward and you know, get out of the house so they can get my meal. I don't know whether it works. Uh, I, I do employ part of that, like um, part of the goodies that I put down when I leave or advise people is half the day's rations. I can't get quite as austere as the entire day's rations. And then you wait an hour after you've got back and you can feed the other half. And day by day, hunger builds until eventually they eat the half ration in the morning when you leave. Yeah, I could I could see incorporating a half ration. Um, a lot of the clients that I work with, I incorporate their part, a portion of their food throughout the day, especially with problems like separation related problems to where they can utilize the food in different settings to build comfort and security or build positivity with confinement in a specific area, whether it's a crate or whether it's behind a baby gate. Um, so it's interesting. I never thought about, I, I've never actually um, read up on Dr. Dunbar's method in regard to putting the whole, the whole food down, the entire meal down for the day when you leave. I don't know if he's written about, he don't know if he's written about it, but he de definitely, we've talked together to 
you know, groups of, you know, 100, 150 trainers all at the same time. And we called it our dog and pony show. And I've definitely <laughs> heard him say it in those meetings, which were filmed and I think uh, are available uh, somewhere. I can't remember the name of the filming company now, but uh, there were uh, all of our lectures together were videotaped and are around somewhere. Oh, excellent. But, uh, you know, another thing is that people, you know, everybody knows about the statutory, you know, hollow bone toy, which you stuff with cream cheese or something, and sometimes you can freeze it to make it last longer. So they're all, all appealing to appetite. There's food, there's food puzzles, there's this, that, and the other. But um, this is the dog's primary sense of smell. We use a lot of um, unusual odors, which can be rotated around um, things like hunting lure, you know, essence of quail, pheasant, deer, rabbit, fox, you know, on a, on a rag or something. So the dog's actually got something really super interesting to appeal to his uh, enormous sense of smell. I mean, in, we have 12 million smell receptors in our nose. The dog has, well, I've heard accounts going as high as 4 billion in a cent. Wow. But a, an average figure might be 800 million to our 12 million. So you can tell that that is their primary sense. And that is something which, you know, they spend a lot of the day sniffing and learning about their environment. And you could use the sense of smell to make the environment more interesting, as well as the food, as well as the toys and the chew toys and the puzzle toys. But then you also need um, visual stimulation, a room with a view, for example, with a bird feeder outside, and then you get squirrels going up and down the bird feeder. And you can use sound, and there's bioacoustic music, um, which is entrained into biological rhythms, most notoriously through a dog's ear. Yes. One of the tapes you can buy. But better, you know, to combine them all, visual and uh, sound, uh, dog TV is very good for some dogs. You can put that on when you're away, and it's TV for dogs. They're seeing other dogs doing things. They're hearing owners instructing dogs. They've got you know, the relaxation phase with the bioacoustic music that isn't just a, a loop that goes around and around. It's sort of constantly changing with numerous different melodies. So you've got the sound in the relaxation phase. You've got the entertainment phase with you know, balls running around on the screen and people running and chasing and lots of interesting noises. And then you've got um, actually an educational phase that they call exposure where and we did a study for dog TV on that and found that a lot of people did find that very helpful for dogs home alone in general. But I'm talking in particular about separation anxiety. Interesting. So um, we just started our research project to see if, there, if we could separate out uh, specific auditory and visual cues as potentially being therapeutic for dogs with separation-related problems or separation anxiety. And the idea being giving them kind of that view, that natural view, and pulling out some of the colors on the spectrum to kind of make it pop and hope the dogs would, would be more likely to see the, the, the TV or the view that was up. And then also um, uh, utilizing some of the sounds that have been recommended in the past, though I, don't, I, I could not find a whole lot of research on this, just a lot of recommendations mm -hmm. uh, in regard to things like pink noise and brown noise. Um, so we've, we've put those things together and then kind of pieced them apart to see what the dogs may be responsive to, what may help, what may not, 
Obviously, that would just be one tool in the toolbox of how to tackle an issue like separation anxiety or a separation-related problem. But um, it's very interesting because initially I hadn't thought about pulling in the entertainment value either or that exercise value. We think of how can we calm our dogs down? How can we bring down this arousal level and this anxiety while we're away? And so um, I think it's really interesting too and working with Dog TV that you talk about incorporating not just that relaxation period, but that kind of entertainment period as well, giving them something to think about and stimulating them. So you don't find that the stimulation adds in any way to uh, that anxiety. It doesn't bring that up. So the goal wouldn't be to keep them calm the whole time that the person is gone, rather give them something to actually look at or focus on. Actually, it depends on the dog. So um, some dogs, um, they sort of suffer in silence. Instead of acting out in the separation anxiety, they kind of go into a depressed state and they would probably appreciate the, you know, the activity phase, um, entertainment phase of dog TV. Other dogs are already um, too wound up and might prefer relaxation phase, which now can be ordered um, a la carte. You can order just the relaxation phase for a dog who's too uppity or an entertainment phase for a dog who's somewhat depressed. And of course, you need to learn what your dog is doing when you're away. And these days, there are all kinds of wonderful um, cameras that you can buy, a Nest camera and such like, so you can actually see your dog when it's away, uh, a device called Pet Chats, where you can uh, you know, see what your dog's doing. And actually, you can talk to it and feed it a food treat through that device. So we did one study on that uh, in shelter dogs and found that it did improve their behavior to have dog TV piped through the pet chance device into the shelter cow. And by the way, the dog TV, they do adjust the colors so dogs don't see red. So when you look at dog TV, you'll find it looks a bit odd to a human eye because it's not designed for the human eye, it's designed for the dog eye. So, you know, reds, uh, I mean, dogs are essentially red, green, colorblind. Instead of red, they probably see a gray. So toy makers who have toys in red, they're only making them red to appeal to the person who's buying the toy. It's not actually going to appeal much to the dog. Yeah, I'd be interested to see what your thoughts are on the kind of color hue that we put to the research videos. We really tried to pull the blues and yellows and kind of make those pop and, and dull the others to see if that would have any effect or have any difference based on that kind of spectrum that they see. So I'd be interested to see what you think about the, about the way that we chose to pull those hues out. And if you think that is, is really kind of would stand out more to them. Mm. On the dog TV website, they do have an example of, you know, just how a dog sees because they pull the reds out and you can see this sort of washed out image. And then you can see their enhanced image as to what the dog sees when he's watching dog TV. So there's a lot of science behind dog TV. I was working with a guy called Ron Levy in the early days. I was one of the sort of three people with the boots on the ground when that first started out. And, you know, Ron did a huge amount of research, probably about 60 scientific papers about how dogs see and how dogs hear and um, you know, what really turns them on and everything that possibly could be incorporated, you know, cameras at dog levels so that the world is seen through the dog's eyes, what dogs enjoy, and they enjoy seeing other dogs. You know, the work started actually with monkeys away being shut up into space and NASA found out they prefer seeing screens with other monkeys and jungle scenes. So dogs, um, by inference, prefer seeing people who they interact with 
other dogs and maybe you know parks and fields and maybe even some urban scenes places interesting they so what are some other things that you typically recommend for starting out with a dog that has a severe case of a separation um, anxiety or separation related problem, isolation issue? Um, you know, the, the kind of going theme right now in the behavior world, which I think is good and, and has been present for a while, but not necessarily um, implemented due to convenience is that we only leave the dog alone as long as the dog can tolerate being alone. And then we kind of stem from there. But what are some things with um, that you typically start with right off the bat for dogs that have more severe cases? So we're seeing lots of heavy destruction, that vocalization, um, you know, inappropriate elimination in the house. Some of those really top indicators and factors that a dog is really suffering. Well, there's really four elements, and um, these are the only places that you can intervene is what you do before you leave, and that is um, you set everything up. Um, so that it's ready to go the minute you step out. You might have all the goodies, including the food, in a bag or something, so you're ready to go. As you go to leave, you place all the things around the place, maybe hide a few treats under cushions and this, that, and the other, make sure the curtains are drawn, put on the TV, and as you leave, some people say, ignore the dog. I think that's very rude, but you mm -hmm. could. You don't want to make a fuss, you know. Right. But you can say, see you, Rusty. I'm off to the shops. I'll be back soon. Take care. But it's got to be matter of fact. And then you step out. And of course, now, part two, you know, that was the leaving. Part two is the away. And the away period, as we've just talked about, you enrich the environment using all senses, you know, including, you know, touch, taste, smell, hearing, you know, every sense is appealed to in any way that you think your dog, um, you know, enjoys with the food that it enjoys with the shoe toys that it prefers and everything's set up so the dog has this nice environment with the music playing you would leave them for as long as they can tolerate i mean you know you wouldn't sort of say oh this is going to work and leave them for eight hours but you might just do a you know, one or two hour trip um, just to see how things are going and spy on the dog and then the third part of course is when you come home and when you come home again some people say ignore the dog i think that's rude so you can say, hey, Rusty, how's it going? Good to be back. And then you don't make a big fuss of him. You just go down, pick up a newspaper, sit down, and wait till he's calm, and then greet him. And if he hasn't eaten his food, then a little while later he gets his food. And the fourth time you could intervene is when you're actually with him, because that's the only time you can train a dog. So you can train certain behaviors. Um, you could have them sit and stay and lie down and wait. And you can have them wait on the other side of the room for 10 minutes while you do something, cook a meal or something, and the dog has to wait. And you can periodically walk over and give him a treat for remaining in place. So you're teaching him, I call it distancing. You're teaching him to learn that he can be apart from you. You're peeling apart the Velcro connection that you have with the dog. So he doesn't have to be sort of codependent. You might even get so far as to you know, have him in a downstay and leave the room for a few minutes and then come back in. So you're training him to do something that he's doing and getting rewarded for while you're doing something that you need to do, like you know, looking at your email or cooking a meal or something, watching TV. And you do that for 10 minutes, three times a day, 20 minutes, three times a day, and build up so that he knows he can survive 
without you. There is a fifth wheel. Uh, we've talked about leaving when you're away, coming home when you're with him. The fifth wheel is medication. And sometimes that is necessary in a severe case right from the get-go. So I had a couple of people came in to see me once. and I, I spoke to the woman on the phone first and she said, um, you know, my, um, my dog's destroying thousands of dollars worth of furniture, you know, when I'm away. I, we just, you know, I love him. She was crying, you know, but, you know, my husband says we're going to have to have him put to sleep. And I said, well, would you come in for an appointment? Just so that I can you know, talk to you about this. Finally, she agreed, and I thought, you know, the husband was probably an ogre. You know, <laughs> got to go. Now the two of them both in love with the dog, and they're both sitting there crying and saying they couldn't cope and they couldn't afford it, and they loved the dog. So I said, and this was a little bit unusual, but it was a very severe case. I said, let me keep the dog in the hospital, and I'm going to try this new medication that works immediately. And the medication which I sort of pioneered in veterinary behavioral medicine is clonidine. Um, and so I used, I put the dog in the cage and I gave it increasing doses of clonidine until eventually I could leave it in the cage. There was no whining and it was perfectly conscious, just like a normal dog who walk in, walk out. And when I got the dose right, I could then give the dog back to the people. And they had this secret weapon that they gave, you know, an hour or so before they left. And it solved the problem while they worked on the behavior modification program because yes. they, had, they had no more time. You know, they, they were done. And, and they, I needed to buy that dog a month or two so that people could, you know, they had a tool, another tool in the tool bag to help them get around that really tight corner. And basically it saved the dog's life. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, and I often I just feel people don't know where to turn or what to do. So it's it's wonderful that they at least gave you that option to say, listen, I can do something about this and you know, let me at least try and see what we can we can do to potentially solve this issue so you don't have to part with a family member that you absolutely love and adore. There are definitely options out there. And and like you mentioned before, too, working with a separation-related problem, um, the behavior modification portion part of it, at least, is not easy. It might be simple. It might be easy to outline you know, your checklist, what to do, what not to do, that sort of thing. But it, it takes a lot of patience and persistence. And oftentimes, people are already at the end of their rope when they come to find that, oh, I can work with a veterinary behaviorist or a behavior mm -hmm. professional, or somebody can help me. You know, they're, they are, they're in tears and it's, they have no idea what to do or where to turn. And through that exasperation, they've, you know, come to find you or another professional to try to help them. And so that can be pretty difficult. Um, in terms of medication, you mentioned clonidine as, as what you kind of went to as your go-to for that dog in particular, but is that still kind of the case? Is that one of those things that's one of your go-tos and, um, what other medications do you typically look at when it comes to each individual dog with a separation-related problem as a potential to help them through that behavior modification piece? Well, there's no one-size-fits-all. Um, you know, every dog's an individual. The brain is still a complicated place. And a drug that works perfectly well in one dog might not work in another one. But uh, typically, the drugs that um, increase serotonin in the brain, the so-called antidepressants, are now more commonly referred to as mood stabilizers. Drugs like Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, um, they take a time to work, you know, sometimes a month, sometimes two months. Um, sometimes there are you know, side effects at the beginning, like, you know, reduction of appetite, which is not what you want with separation anxiety. But 
Sometimes it doesn't happen, and sometimes you can back off on the dose for a while and they can become tolerant to it. And sometimes they act a bit logy or tired for a week or so, or not. Sometimes those some dogs have no side effects at all. And then you've got a dog with a high serotonin level. Serotonin builds confidence. It's higher, for example, in army officers than enlisted men. Um, it's, it's, you know, confidence and serotonin go hand in glove. So you build the dog's confidence internally, but it's not a panacea. Um, there are drugs, of course, on the market. There was the Eli Lilly version of Prozac called Reconcile. Mm-hmm. I think that's still available. Yep. Um, and that has proper dosing indications on it. And then there was the Novartis drug, Clomicam, which is not actually a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, but I would call it a preferential serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So either of those or any of those are good as sort of called background. Uh, they'll add a certain percentage of success, but they won't necessarily solve the problem. So you sometimes need another medication too. And that medication could be, uh, in the short term, perhaps a, a benzodiazepine drug in the Valium family. Um, typically, I would use Alprazolam, which is a trade name Xanax. Um, but then I got more fond of my own discovery of clonidine. Um, and myself and my resident at the time, Dr. Ogata, who's head of the behavior program at Purdue right now, um, her and I published a paper If people went on to googlescholar.com and looked up Dodman Ogata, O-G-A-T-A, and clonidine, C-L-O-N-I-D-I-N-E. They'd see that paper. And we used it to treat fear regression. We used it to treat separation anxiety. We used it to treat thunderstorm phobia. And it worked in all of those conditions. So sometimes you need your background drug, and then you need your immediate front-end drug to control things right from the get-go, particularly for people who are desperate. But nowadays, um, I thought it was a kind of somewhat retrograde step, but um, a drug called Trazodone became very trendy. It was introduced by a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Barbara Sherman. um, Yeah, NC State. NC State. I think she's retired now, but she's a wonderful person. But I think she was married to a, a psychiatrist, and he said, why don't you try Trazodone, some of these dogs, well, it's a a real old clunker medication. And she used it um, as a supplement in dogs with fear-based conditions like separation anxiety who were on a serotonin drug like Prozac and who weren't responding, you know, as well as one would like. And when it was used as an add-on treatment, the paper showed that you got additional improvement with Trazodone. So Trazodone somehow took off and, and all vets are using it all over the place. Personally, I don't like it. It's defined as a hypnotic. Hypnotic means it puts you to sleep. And the only use I ever found for it was that, you know, if you've got a dog who's having uh, nightmares and can't get through the night, it's it's one drug in the tool of making a restful sleep. So if you use the right dose before bedtime, the dog can have a sleep through if there's some kind of issue where it's not sleeping at night. It can be used in that context as can clonidine, but um, I didn't find much else used for it. My residents would come by one after the other and say, oh, I've heard about trazodone. Do you, can I try trazodone? Can I try it? And I say, knock yourself out. And they come <laughs> to me after about four months and say, I don't think this thing's helping much at all. I go, that's what I thought. So it, it's a, I think it's got um, an unnecessary um, tag of approval 
that everyone's sort of heard of it now. It's like a knee-jerk reaction. Oh, anxiety, trazodone, anxiety, trazodone. Um, and I'm not saying it doesn't ever work. I just don't think it's one of the best medicines. It's not one I would reach for, first of all. Well, my question would be, um, I guess with any of the benzos, but trazodone in particular, is that the learning portion is so important in behavior modification that do you feel a drug like trazodone slows that down? Because I, I, I do feel like vets are... are um, primary care vets that are working with dogs with behavior issues prescribe trazodone a lot. A lot of the clients I work with, like I hear trazodone often. Mm. Um, but I, I do have concerns about learning abilities under the influence of a drug like trazodone. What is your thought on that? Well, um, you mentioned benzos and benzodiazepines um, like Valium and Alprazolam and Lorazepam and Clonazepam and that uh, uh, they, they all do affect memory. Um, if very small doses, not too bad, but l larger doses that are sometimes used will affect learning and memory. Trazodone isn't really in that class, so I don't think it will do much to impair learning, but I just do think it's overprescribed and um, there's a lot of hype about it. But you have to remember in veterinary medicine that, uh, like human medicine, the placebo effect is alive and well. Mm. And um, when we're doing experiments, we have to have a control group that's given a dummy tablet, you know, a blank, a placebo. And the placebo typically um, will have about a 30 or 40% effect. So in wow. order to demonstrate a clear effect of a drug, it has to have like a 70% effect where the placebo is contributing 30, 40%. So it's, you have to, it, in fact, it's become so mainstream now in human medicine they're doing studies of placebo versus placebo and finding you know maybe placebo could be a real treatment for people who have conditions and you give it to them and they know it's a placebo and it's going to work anyway it's belief not systems or something <laughs> it's not the dog thinking oh this is going to do me good it's the owner who's primed to think something good might happen so we give them treatment a and treatment b and treatment b maybe it's the placebo or not but if, if treatment b is the placebo and you say this, if you are receiving the medicine, you may see a side effect such as sedation or something else. Well, they'll see exactly what you tell them, the same list in the placebo group as in the drug group. Wow. Because they even imagine the side effects, let alone the effect. Interesting. So quite, a, quite a trick to design an experiment to eliminate the effect of placebos. So if people think it's going to work, it will work. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if it a vet looks at you in the eye and gives you the confidence, says, here's trazodone, this is really going to help your dog. 30 or 40% of cases it's going to help anyway, even if it wasn't working. Hmm. Yeah, even if there's no actual pharmacological effect. Wow, that's an impressive number. There was one very unethical experiment. That a classmate of mine at Glasgow, he was doing what he called seeing practice. He went to work with a practitioner in Yorkshire in James Harriet Territory, and the practitioner uh, now passed away, Dr. Strayton. Um, he said, I'm going to leave you in charge of this branch, which was not right in itself for a veterinary student. But then he said, I want you to switch out all the antibiotics for water. So he switched them all out, and uh, the dogs came in, and they had some problem, and they were given the water antibiotic. And a lot of them get well because a lot of them do. If you've got an infection, 
most times you combat it eventually. You know, if you get flu, you'll recover. You know, if you have um, you know, a bacterial this, that, or the other, you know, eventually the body will fight back. And I'm not saying antibodies don't work. I'm just saying placebo effect's pretty powerful too. Yeah, wow. That's a very scary experiment. <laughs> it was. Totally unethical. Mm. Well, when it comes to other types of treatments, have you heard of things like the calmer canine, like the halo loop? Do you ever recommend or um, think about using any of those types type devices for dogs with separation-related issues? Um, not really. I mean, the one thing that I have um, thought about and sort of concurred with, I don't know if I've actually ever directly recommended it, but um, these pressure vests, mm-hmm. like the anxiety wrap, mm-hmm. um, I did an experiment with... Temple Grandin, you know, the famous autistic woman. And uh, we um, did an experiment on pigs. Um, They were a friendly little bunch, uh, very noisy (laughs) on a hot summer day. And we, she designed a squeeze machine, like the squeeze machine she uses for autistic children. And it was beautifully padded and soft in a V trough. And you could just bring the sides and just gently squeeze the pigs. And they would all relax and go to sleep Hmm. and if you gave them saline um, as a placebo they still relaxed and went to sleep because there was no owner to interpret anything and when we were just measuring but if you gave them an opioid antagonist like Narcan they didn't go to sleep as quickly so we published that in a journal called pharmacology biochemistry and behavior what it means is that the effect of squeezing generates endorphins which are feel-good chemicals and you know they're in humans the opioids they're related to are sometimes called narcotic analgesics narcosis being inducing sleep so you're inducing sleep with this gentle controlled pressure and that's theoretically how the squeeze machine that she uses in autistic centers works to help autistic children and actually it's probably and I never thought I'd ever end up researching this. The reason why hugging feels so good. Hmm. So Interesting. A nice controlled hug from your auntie, and everybody feels nice and warm and cozy. Not not allowed during COVID, of course, but right. <laughs> you can still hug your dog if they like it, though. <laughs> you can. Well, and I wonder too if some of the reason that people who are trying some of the like the thunder shirts or the the devices that you wrap um, your your dog up in almost kind of burrito style, if it's if it's not applying enough pressure, perhaps you know I've had people yeah. say, oh yeah, I've, I've put one on, I ordered one for my dog, but there's really no instruction necessarily. So I wonder if it's just kind of a lack of full compression as to why they're not seeing yeah, a result if, from if that. If it doesn't create some kind of what Temple Grandin called lateral side pressure if there's not pressure for the pressure vest it's obviously not going to work but on the other hand if you do it too tight like a corset you could actually inhibit the dog's ability to breathe so the application requires common sense um, but to apply enough pressure but not too much so i I used to like one called the thunder shirt um, that was redesigned it used to be just an anti-static blanket kind of thing but but and then with just ties underneath, but now they put Velcro on so you can actually fit it. And I'm not even sure it's available anymore. I think the the inventor passed away and his sons took over. I think maybe, I don't know if the business is still going, but Thundershirt, it would protect against static in, ele- in electricity in a thunderstorm, but also you could 
wrap it tight enough that it had the hugging effect. So we did an experiment on that and it worked better than placebo. We had a hmm. placebo vest that didn't have the anti-static lining. And we did a study on the anxiety wrap. And of course, the thunder shirt basically worked by the same mechanism and theoretically should work also, at least for the squeezing effect. But for thunderstorms, the um, the thunder sh- uh, the um, storm defender had the extra capacity of having this layer of, I think it was mylar uh, conducting material inside, which protected the dog against static fields. Yeah, so not quite working the same as wrapping them up in a tight shirt or a blanket or even just applying that pressure. I guess that anti-static material it plays a, an important role also. In thunderstorm phobia. Mm-hmm. But just right, for thunderstorms. we're talking about, it's just the pressure. So, you know, and actually it explains why, you know, going back and or going to Africa, why um, women will swaddle their babies. You know, they wrap them tightly and then they, they fall asleep. So it's yes. swaddling. It's hugging, it's squeezing, it's lateral side pressure, it's endorphin releasing, it's calmness inducing, it's it's a good thing. So that kind of device I would use, um, and but maybe some other tackle that could be applied that uh, might help. But I think really it's um, trying to change the dog's perception. I, I think the, the, the training word that would be a uh, psychology term would be counter conditioning. So the dog is conditioned to experience terror when you're leaving. And what you try and make it is leaving is, is pleasure and not misery. Right. Now, oh, good, I get to watch my favorite TV show. Oh, good, I get to see my favorite treat. Because so, when you come back, as well as this low-key greeting, hey, how are you doing, Rusty? You pick up all the goodies and the TV goes off. So it's all gone. So you're counter-conditioning. You're conditioning them that all these good things happen when you're away. Well, and I would think too, with multiple different things that they like, there's not as much of a concern for poisoning anything. So, you know, if you always give your dog the same treat when you leave, the same frozen Kong or, you know, CET chew, and it's always the same that you can poison that. But if it's multiple things in their environment that they enjoy, you know, the dog TV and the treats hidden under the cushions and all that kind of fun stuff that I would imagine it takes out that concern for, you know, poisoning some of their favorite things. Right. And you mentioned CBD. That's another good treatment. CBD is very good for anxiety and pain are the two main indications. So we did a little study at the Center for Canine Behavior Studies on that too. And we have all the results in, although the study is still open. If anybody wants to join in, it's still an open study. I've seen the results to date. And um, they would just go to, I think probably the fastest way to go there is dogstudies.org, all one word, D-O-G, studies, dogstudies.org. And somewhere on that website, which is the Center for Canine Behavior Studies website, they will find um, a study of CBD. And it just asks, have you ever used it? Have you not used it? What brand did you use? What dose did you use? What was the condition you were treating? How old is your dog? What was the effect you observed? And bottom line is, most people are using it for either pain or mobility issues, and usually in older dogs that are, uh, say, upwards of six, and especially dogs who are over 10, and that would be to treat the pain of arthritis because it is an analgesic. And then there was a big chunk of dogs, like 32% or something, who were using it to treat anxiety. But then there was another few indications that 
probably it doesn't work for like some people using it to treat cancer, which I think is a non-starter. Uh, it does some other weird things that you wouldn't um, automatically know about, like it's very good for bone healing. Oh, interesting. It's been shown in spades in uh, Israel. They did experiments, horrible experiments in rodents with broken bones that uh, oh. they healed much faster with CBD. So CBD, uh, but you've got to be very careful because um, the company that I trust most is called Elevet, E-L-L-E-V-E-T, and I happen to know that their product is like, it's 100% what it says it is. Um, but when I talked to them, they said they'd analyzed all these other various brands that are out there. Some of them, although they say they contain CBD, they don't contain any at all. Really? And some of them don't contain what they say they contain. And even the ones that contain what they say they're going to contain have the wrong dosing instructions. Oh, so it was geez. a kind of trick question for Elevet. I said, so what dose do you recommend on your... Um, your, your, for your, your dogs, and they came up with a number of milligrams a number of times per day, which I happen to know is right. And so then I thought, well, I've got the right product, it's the right dose, it's the right indications. I like this company. It's maybe not the only one, but it's the one that I know about for sure that is the real McCoy. Yeah, and you're the second veterinarian to recommend that um, company as well. Uh, I had Dr. Narda Robinson on. She's a, um, an integrative and holistic veterinarian, and she's also a medical doctor. And she um, she has the same impression of Elevet as opposed to the other companies and organizations. That and the one other thing that she had mentioned too is that the terpenes make a difference as well. So sure. do we have terpenes in the ingredients that are going to you know increase anxiety because they're meant to kind of contribute to focus and um, <clears throat> you know kind of your your in the morning waking up type terpenes or the L-theanine and the chamomile and the mm-hmm. lavender that that kind of calm things down. Actually, Elevet contains CBDA as well as CBD. So it's got oh. two, two different types. Um, but, you know, what we found in our study, um, which is ongoing, like I say, is that 50% of people found that it really did work for the indication and 50% that it didn't. I'm suspecting the ones who didn't because they were using multiple different brands, used the wrong brand with the wrong amount and the wrong dosing instructions. Because if you give the right brand with the right composition and the right dosing instructions, you will see an effect because it is anti-anxiety and it is anti—it's um, analgesic. Uh, and the study they've even done and paid for pretty elaborate studies. One at Cornell, looking at the pain of arthritis, I believe, in dogs with hip dysplasia. I think it was, mm-hmm. and it was uh, overseen by a veterinarian, and there was a placebo group, and it was very effective. I think eighty percent effective, which is pretty good success. It is. So that's it's becoming a huge business as well. Yeah. The green revolution. The green revolution. That's right. Yeah. I'd, actually, I'd lo- love to pick your brain on that. The what? Making a lot of people a lot of green money too. That's right. And I only see it going up from here for sure. So, Well, it's almost side effect free. It's, it's, amazing. it's amazing. You know, there are some side effects, but um, at very high dosages, but yeah. I mean, I don't think it's ever been a death reported with any of the cannabinoids. Yeah, which is fantastic because you don't hear about that in in the usage of some of the psychopharmaceuticals or other or other medicines that we use on a regular basis. There's always some, you know, mm-hmm. some side effects, some deaths reported, and things like that. So it's pretty impressive to use use something and not see that at all. <clears throat> that tells you it's kind of safe to blend into the repertoire if you're thinking about using it. You know, as a vet looking to help a a dog with particular behavior issues like separation-related problems. Yep. 
the veterinarian's first motto, first of all, do no harm. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, Dr. Dobbin, this has been really helpful. And I think that all of our listeners are going to get a lot of value out of this episode in particular. I could talk to you for hours. I think this is um, one of one of the more fascinating subjects for me, especially since we've now branched into CBD and some other alternative treatments potentially. But um, hopefully we can catch up another time to continue our conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, for anyone that's interested in the work that you're currently publishing, um, I am going to put some information in the show notes, especially to dogstudies.orgs, but also a link to your website. And they can also find you at Tufts too. But what is the best way to follow along with some of the research that you're currently working on or any um, presentations that you're giving or any education that you're putting out there? Um, well, um, they can go to the website. Another way of getting there is drdardman.org, O-R-G. That takes you to the same place as dogstudies.com, uh, dot, dot org, um, which takes you to the same place as the Center for Canine Behavior Studies dot org, or just Center for Canine Behavior Studies dot org. And it should be the website's pretty regularly updated. The news at the minute is that the most recent paper we put out, which was um, basically about the treatment of aggression, and it, the title is something along the lines of. Um, I could look it up, but um, it's something about the different types of professionals and there are different approaches to treating canine aggression and outcome. And that was oh, published in the Journal of Veterinary Behavior. And, I'm sorry, yeah, Journal of Veterinary Behavior. And initially it was um, it's closed that you had to pay to read the article. Mm -hmm. But for the next, I think it's 50 or 60 days, a couple of months, it's open access. They've made it open access so anybody can go to the Journal of Veterinary Behavior website and they can locate, they might be able to track it through our website, but they can go to that website and they can download that paper for free. Excellent. And that's a limited time offer. And it tells you, you know, the good work that trainers do. It's got a lot of stuff for qualified trainers in particular do a good work. It tells you about the success of the various behavior modification programs for aggression. It tells you about the different training equipment that works and it doesn't work and the things that have negative effect. It tells you about uh, training techniques as opposed to behavior programs. Um, and it's just generally helpful. We're working on one right now that's gonna be a sequel to it, which is the treatment of fear and anxiety. Um, and that also will be, who did you go to see was it a trainer? Was it your vet? Was it a non-veterinary behaviorist? Was it someone with the IAABC? Um, was it someone, a CPTT qualified trainer? Was it a board certified veterinary behaviorist? How did things work out for you? What program was used? Um, what things worked the best? What techniques worked the best for you? What medicines worked best for you? So that one's coming on the back burner, followed by another one on obsessive compulsive disorder, ah, followed by another one on some miscellaneous behaviors. In the meantime, you know, we, we did publish a demographics paper. So anybody who wants to, I believe that one is available too on the website, but um, that one won the award for the welfare article of the year for the Journal of Veterinary Behavior. And it was the demographics and comorbidity of behavior problems in dogs. So if you want to know not from some specialized veterinary clinic, but people out there in the sticks. How many dogs have separation anxiety? 
12%. Mm-hmm. How many dogs suffer from anxiety? 44%. How many dogs have problems with aggression? Yeah, 20-something percent. How many dogs have... In a, I mean, you can... And you can see which behaviors... Um, you know, the comorbidity means existing together. Mm-hmm. So I've always had a hunch that although my group says dominance is dead, there is no such thing as dominance. There's no such thing as the pack. And they refer to dominance as the D word. Because yeah. you can't say it. It's like Voldemort. You, know, you That's can't right. say the word. <laughs> so we've kind of shown that with owner-directed aggression that was formerly called dominance aggression, the dogs who are their owners, the two circles in a Venn diagram overlap, one being fear conditions and one being aggression to owner. And yes, there's some overlap and some dogs are engaged in this behavior because of anxiety or fear, mistrust. Others, not so much. They're not frightened at all. They're just bullying their owners around. Are you going to use the D word? (laughs) I think so. And there's a few of us, like um, (laughs) myself and Dr. Sir Pell and Dr. Mark Beckoff, all refuse to believe that there's no such thing as pack order. We all refuse to believe that there is no such thing as dominance in the one species of mammal that you would really, you know, in the wild, it does exist. Uh, And even Dr. Metch, who does work with wolves, um, rescinded what he said about it being an unnatural situation and it wasn't dominance after all because he started the dominance um, myth, that, mm-hmm. uh, understanding. And then he, then he said, oh, it's all wrong because they were in an unnatural environment. And then he rescinded what he said and said, I, I made a mistake. Yeah, that's fascinating. Because dogs we... are not in nature. They're, they're living in a, in the house. It's not a very natural environment. So, no. Uh, it's, it's the same as the dogs in, capt- in the wolves in captivity. Yeah, exactly. You see that behavior with wolves that are captive and dogs that are captive, essentially, captive. but not necessarily out in right. the wild. Yeah. So I think the D word has a place. <laughs> not for every dog, you know. <laughs> this is a safe space to say any word you need to say, right? <laughs> right. Very good. Oh, wonderful. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Dobbin, for your time. I'm not going to take any more up, but um, I would love to do this again at some point. And I'm going to put a link to all the resources that you gave me directly in the show notes so people can access your site, get access to the projects that you're working on, especially some of these um, more recent articles that were released and uh, just follow up with with the research as it comes out so we can all keep up with what's happening. It's going out very fast now. Fantastic. And we also have a Facebook page and an Instagram and stuff like that to try and get the word out. So those are other things we can look up. Perfect. I look forward to following those also. Very good. Okay. All the best to you. The mower man outside. (laughs) Misses up the soundtrack. (laughs) Au revoir.